Johnny Cash once described country music as being made of emotions, of love, of breakup, of love and hate, and death and dying, mama, apple pie, and the whole thing. I'm Tennessean country music writer Cindy Watts. Welcome to Country Mile, the USA Today Network's new podcast series exploring the evolution of one of America's truest art forms through the stories of some of the genre's biggest names. You've known each other for a really long time. I bet you have really great stories about each other. None of we can tell. <laughs> for a few more people to die. <laughs> you can't let me down like that, Tracy. You, you got to come up with something. Oh, his, his wife run me off. I tell stories on him. They pass me back I have him sworn to secrecy. He gets a paycheck. We, we all have to do that. <laughs> but does he have you sworn to secrecy? Uh, not really. <laughs> I didn't do anything. I was a bitch. <laughs> I was an absolute angel. <laughs> That's so funny. Welcome to Country Mile, a podcast series brought to you by the Tennessean, part of the USA Today Network and Belmont University. This is our second episode taped at Dirk Bentley's Seven Peaks Festival in Buena Vista, Colorado. Producer Erica Whitney and I flew to Denver, rented a car, and drove the four hours on winding mountain roads to the music festival in the quaint little town. When we arrived, we met up with 90s country kings Travis Tritt and Tracy Lawrence. Erica clipped a couple of microphones to side tables in an echoey metal trailer, and we taped ourselves a podcast. The men told us about the bohemian atmosphere at the festival, their path to Nashville, and surviving and thriving in the 90s. We're here with Travis Tritt and Tracy Lawrence. I've already heard you are vibing hard on this place. What have you seen? What's what's happened? To well, you? I've already I've already done an Instagram post. I've already hit the oxygen bar. There's a there's a Bloody Mary station back there behind us. Uh, I've already got a B twelve shot. There's a massage table waiting on me very soon. So <laughs> I just won't go. <laughs> I had to get out and walk around. They were telling me how cool everything. It feels very bohemian. Oh, it does it? It really does. It's got a great vibe to bohemian it. Bohemian rhapsody here. Well, I don't know about the rhapsody. <laughs> Maybe a Russell's rhapsody. <laughs> I love it. It's like bohemian dust. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Is is is, is the yeah. I know the scenery is beautiful. Yes, it is. It's absolutely gorgeous. Everywhere you look up here, it's beautiful. Just gorgeous. I mean, I saw snow driving up here on top of the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. So I don't even know what an oxygen bar is, Tracy. What's an oxygen bar? They've got a little table set up where you can like put the oxygen nose on and then get some pure oxygen for 10, 15 minutes or so. Because we're at like a... 8,000 feet above right. sea level is pretty yeah. high up here, so it's a little, like a little short yeah. breath. Rocky Mountain High for sure. Yeah, it takes you a little bit to adjust. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so, what you're telling me is it's hard to sing? Is it harder to sing up here? Uh, you fatigue out a little quicker. At least I do. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not used to standing in one place either on stage, no, so I run around a lot. So, that may be curtailed some. But we're still planning on having a great time. It's going to be fun. So how long have y'all known each other? Gosh. Almost 30 years. Yeah, just about. We met in the early 90s. As I, and I've told him the story. I actually, I, I saw Travis before I moved to Nashville in 89 at the Fool's Gold in Alexandria, Louisiana. Stood right in front of him right before I moved to Nashville. So I knew him before him. Then. <laughs> so was he, was he any good? Yeah, he rocked. <laughs> he rocked. 
Yeah, he was he was right there at the beginning when Young Country was just taking off. It was Travis and Garth just kicked off, and Alan Jackson and Mark Chestnut. I think Clint Black had. There was a whole bunch of y'all that had first albums out in '89. I mean, that was that was the downbeat of everything yeah. that came after it. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, it motivated me to get up and move. I said, I got to be a part of this. That's amazing. This is the 30th anniversary of the class of 1989. Yes, it is. Yeah, this year's very cool. But does it feel like it's been three decades, Travis? In some ways, it does. In some ways, it seems like it's just gone by, you know, in a flash. Um, but there's so many great memories of all those 30 years for me. I'm sure Travis yeah. the same way. All of us. You know, we experienced. We were on the cusp of something that really exploded um, in in eighty nine, and continued to the snowball just continued to roll uh, and get bigger and bigger over the course of you know the next few years, and and to be a part of creating that kind of wave, and then being able to ride on that wave is really um, it's it's just the best. I mean, it's just the greatest thing in the world for an artist. Because when you're trying to break into the business, it's it's the only thing that you hope for is that you get a shot, that you get a chance to break in. And then once you break in, then the the thing is is that you want to have a career that has some longevity to it. You know, you just want to be able to, you know, have a career that that lasts as long as a George Jones or Johnny Cash or, you know, uh, Waylon Jennings or somebody like that, people that we looked up to. And to be able to look back now and realize that after 30 years that, you know, things are going really good and still having the kind of effect. And the cool thing for me is the fact that in just the last couple, three years, there seems to be a resurgence in people that are interested in the kind of music that we did back in the 90s. It, it, it is coming back around to that full circle. And you're probably seeing what I'm seeing. It's not just the fans that came up with us. No. It's young kids. It's teenagers. It's exactly. just people that are finding our music on the internet. And I'm, I'm having people ask request songs that were album cuts so they're not just falling in line with what radio played they're finding their own things that they like absolutely records and they know it all that's exactly right and it's very very that's very fulfilling as an artist to to realize because to in my mind you know i remember when i first got started i remember doing an interview and i would talk about or doing all kinds of interviews and i would talk about they would ask me about well who are your influences and i would talk about you know, how influential, you know, Merle Hager and George Jones, Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, and all those people were, Hank Jr., on me. And I thought about that at the time, and I thought, I bet those guys think that that's the stupidest thing in the world for us to say that. I bet they, they just look at that and go, oh, that's so stupid. That's so corny. But the fact is, is that what we're seeing now is that younger artists, newer artists that are coming out are looking up to us the same way that we looked up to all of those people. Absolutely. George Jones, all those people. So we're what they listened to when they were kids, whether their parents listened to it 
or whatever, or the ones like Tracy's saying, the ones that are just now discovering us for whatever reason on their own. And that is one of the most gratifying feelings in the world for me. Yeah. I'm sure it is for you too. It is to know that after all this time that your music had a tremendous impact and a tremendous influence on a lot of people. Man, we were part of the whole front side of that, but it was really a great time to be a country music player. It was. It was was a ball. It was. And and the camaraderie was great back then, too. And it's good to see that that this generation of contemporary artists are are trying to make those kind of things happen. Because I I, I thought everybody was really cool with each other back then. Because everybody kind of had their place. You know, uh, we were all fighting for the chart positions and everything, but everybody kind of had their own sound. Everybody was doing their own thing. You said, Tracy, that the class of 1989 is what spurred you to move to Nashville, right? And that didn't take very long because you were here like a year or two later. Yeah, uh, you know, I was I was influenced by all the old guys too, like Travis. I mean, uh, I was a huge Haggard, huge Straight fan. You know, Straight really had a huge influence on me. I love that Texas sound. But you know, I bounced around with a few bands, played the Louisiana circuit for a while, uh, and and in '89 I was living in Spring Hill, Louisiana, and then I, I moved to Ruston. When I was getting ready to go back to college, I had two and a half years of mass comm degree, and I was going to go back and finish my degree. And I had re-enrolled in college, and I was getting ready to start class. And I'm like, God, if I start school, I'm going to be stuck here. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have some kids. I'm going to, I'm going to throw this all away. And I, I just made a quick decision. I packed up everything, and I moved, moved to Tennessee. You know, I, I played my last gig and, and packed up. And I remember, I think I had a Willie Nelson cassette tape that I played all the way. I think I cried all the way to Little Rock, man. I was terrified. It, it, was, a, it was a big move because I came by myself, and I didn't know anybody. So I got there September of 90 and uh, did my first showcase at the Bluebird Cafe in January of 91. And in May, I got sticks and stone. So it was seven months. Be crazy. It was crazy. But things were moving really fast back then. Exactly. You know. They were. It takes a lot of nerve. It takes a lot of guts to be able to make that first move. It reminded me, when you were just now saying that, it reminded me of quitting my heating and air conditioning job back in the, in the 80s. And going out and started playing music full time. I had been doing it part time. I was working at the Heating Air Edition Wholesale House in Marietta, Georgia. And I was doing that during the day. And then at night, Monday through Saturday, I was playing a gig. And I did that for about the better part of a year, nine months to a year. And it nearly killed me because, you know, you're playing from eight. To two uh, on weeknights and eight to three or eight to four on Saturday nights. And then you have to get up. I had to be at work the next morning, you know, to, to open everything up at seven o'clock. So not a whole lot of sleep involved, but the passion for the music, the passion just being in the business was just so strong. And the only thing you wonder about at that particular time is. Okay, am I going to be able to get this off the ground? Am I going to be able to follow this dream, chase this dream? And there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of, you enter into it with a lot of fear and trepidation. It's terrifying. It is terrifying, you know, because you don't know where your next, you know, next gig's coming from. A lot of times you don't know where your next meal's coming from. 
And I played all those bars and clubs and honky-tonks, and I was fortunate very much like what Tracy was just talking about. I was very fortunate in things that were moving so fast. I got signed to the very first record company that I was presented to, and I got signed in 87, didn't release the first single until 89. And Country uh, Place. Yeah, that's correct. And that seemed like an eternity. I mean, I was out on the road. A band and I, we were traveling around all over the place, hauling a U-Haul and, and putting the rest of the equipment in the back of my pickup truck and traveling all over the United States. It's a great time to live. It was. It was great. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take anything Cause I, for that experience. And, and you know, back then, I still love it. I still love it. Every moment of it. But, you know, back then, that was something. Oh, yeah, I absolutely. I it so bad. Absolutely, me too. And that's all you ever thought about. That's exactly you right. Sleep that's exactly right. Both, both your songs hit so fast. How long did it take to fill that shift, you know, to see the music start? Mine was instantaneous. Mine was yours too. It was, it was instant. I mean, it was like life-changing old life. Boom, it's like shooting. It's shot out of a gun. I got signed to a, a singles deal. Warner Brothers Records, back in those days, they didn't sign anybody to an album deal. Everybody they signed, from Randy Travis to Dwight Yoakam to me to everybody else, you got started off with a singles deal. That meant they were going to cut three singles on you. And if one of those three singles didn't go top ten, then you're done. You're out. And they released, they, they cut three singles. First single was Country Club. I'm a member of the Country Club. released it in August of 89 and it went top 10 not only did it go top 10 but it became the largest selling country music single that Warner Brothers Records had ever had and they immediately came rushing back in and they said okay now we've got to rush back in and do the album and I'm thinking oh my god you know because I wasn't even sure if I had all the stuff together you know I had I carried a briefcase around with me everywhere I went with about a hundred and something songs in it that I had written before I ever came to Nashville. But I didn't get a lot of feedback, pushback. I mean, feedback from um, the record labels or anybody saying, oh, if we do an album, nobody was really thinking about that. It was all, let's just put this single out and let's see what happens. So then all of a sudden it was like, rush back in and, and do the album. And, Things moved very, very quickly from that point on. It was like being strapped to a rocket ship. Boom. So yeah. it was, was Help Me Hold On in your briefcase of songs? It was. Help Me Hold On was in there. Here's a Quarter was in there. Drift Off the Dream was in there. Uh, Put Some Drive in Your Country was in there. Wow. Uh, there was that, that, was, that was Sammy Kershaw carried on the saddlebags. I don't know. You know, that was that was a big question for years. Everybody wondered what he was what he was carrying. I assumed he was probably carrying the same thing that everybody assumed I was carrying, which was drugs. Oh, goodness, man. People used to come up to me all the time. He said, man, what you got that briefcase for? I said, you got drugs in there? I said, no, man, it ain't drugs. I got songs in there. 
They're worth more than drugs. Yeah, well, <laughs> turned out to be. Huge, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, a, but it was a magical time. And once again, I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful for my career. And I would have been thankful and grateful no matter when it happened. However, I'm even that much more grateful that it happened when it did because that time period was just, just a magical time. It really was. How did your album come together, Tracy? Your debut. Atlantic. It was put together pretty quick. We cut ten songs. I, I did a five album, five option deal at Atlantic. Like but, right off the bat, where right. Travis got three singles. Oh, yeah. it, it, you, you, but but Atlantic was on the verge of closing. They mm-hmm. had Billy Joe Rule. They had uh, Dean Dillon. I remember that. And uh, they were they were about to go there because Atlantic was a subsidiary of the Warner Brothers. It was right. one of their one of their imprints. So I mean I. I've been writing with a couple of guys around. I mean, that's what I did when I got to town. I hit every club I could get on stage and sing at. I met every writer in town. I was writing all the time. And uh, so, I mean, I, I came in with a sack full of songs, wound up cutting a couple of things that I've written. And then we uh, found other things from songwriters I've been working with. And I don't know if the label really believed anything was going to take off with it. I had a couple of people over there that really bought in. Elroy Kahanic was the promotions guy over there that really believed in me. And he got in his car and took sticks and stones around drove to radio stations in his region and got people to play that record and it, it took off. Back in the old way. Back in the old way. Yeah. <laughs> when you wait for charts to come out on Monday nights, man, you'd right. be a week behind. I mean, that's that right. That's it. That was before consultants yeah. and all these other people were called in to tell radio stations how to program. And every radio station played to their market. It exactly. Block, it wasn't block programs back then. Exactly. Really cool. If you went into, if you went into, I remember you probably had the same experience I walked walked into radio station after radio station after radio station all across this country with somebody from the record label. And they would introduce you to the program director. And he'd go in his office with you and sit down and listen to the song. And if he liked it, he'd add it right then, right then. There was no deliberating or well, let's let's call our consultants and see what they have to say about it. There was none of that stuff back then. It was all straightforward, and they just they knew their market, and they knew what their listeners. Most of them did. They knew what their listeners liked, what they didn't like, and they programmed their radio stations accordingly. And it was a great time, man. It was great. Reminds me though, the old. The old clip out of the coal miner's daughter, you know, where Loretta Lynn and her husband, you know, they're going around from radio station to radio station. It was, it had, it had obviously progressed quite a bit, but it was still being done that way. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by the Tennessean, part of the USA Today Network in partnership with Belmont University, where students can study music and music business in the heart of Music City, or they can choose from more than 95 other fields of study. To learn more, visit belmont.edu. We hope you are enjoying our Country Mile podcast. Don't miss your all-access pass to country music news with the Tennessean's mobile app. Download the Tennessean app for free in the App Store or Google Play Store. So... When did you all, because clearly you're friends, it seems like, when did you all kind of meet and become more than, he's a guy I saw on stage? I don't remember either. I, it seemed, did we do, uh, did we do 
uh, hot country nights together yeah. in in L.A. That may have been the first time. I know it was around. It was either it was either that or it was right around one of the um, either the ACM awards or the CMA awards. ACMs were probably about that was probably around that time because I was. Billboard was still around the ACMs. It was out on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And we, it was a little bit more social. We'd all kind of right. hang out exactly. a lot more back then. Exactly. That's probably what it was. Yeah. And was that in like 91 or something? 91, 92. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was not long yeah. after. Because I did my first fanfare in 91. In June of 91, I did my very first fanfare. <laughs> well, you know, the 90s is certainly making, you know, making a, come, a comeback. There's air quotes. You can't sit there. Um, Right now, what do you think it is about that that time and that kind of distinct sound? Because I do feel like there was kind of a distinct sound then. That I think there was good was music. Good. I think it was uh, the music was good. The songs, every artist had personality. The songs were well written. They had good hook lines. They had good melodies. Uh, I think I just think it was a great era. I think I think a couple of things. I think first of all, I think artists of that era were much easier to recognize um, than some of the things that are out now. They Everybody had their own specific voice. They had their own specific style. And they were recognizable. And you knew within the first three or four notes, if Tracy Lawrence's single came on the radio, you knew who that was. If a Garth Brooks single came on, you knew who that was. It was Clint Black or Alan Jackson or me or Mark Chestnut or whoever, anybody from that era. We all had our own different voice and we all had our own different style. And it was very identifiable. I think the other thing is that because of the fact that all of us from that era had been so heavily influenced by the traditional country music that had come before us, we tended to kind of carry that forward. And the songs, traditional country songs have always been songs that told stories, stories that were true, stories that were accurate, stories that people could relate to. No matter what your background, I don't care if you're rich, poor, uh, what your social status is, it it. They did songs, we did songs about how you felt about your lifestyle, your social status, your country, your your family, heartache. Your, your heartache, the acquisition of love and the loss of it. All of the things that everybody from any kind of background could relate to. And I think that's one of the things that that made that and the individuality, I think, was the things that made our era extremely, extremely special. Because everybody that I talked to, everybody that I came in contact with that was putting out new music in that era and that was being born out of that era, we all basically had the same kind of outlook as, as the other. And that is that we all were influenced by the same people. We grew up listening to very straight ahead, 
you know, country music. We liked other things too. You know, I mean, I grew up listening to, you know, country music was always my first love. Man, I loved, you know, Southern Rock and Leonard Skinner and the Allman Brothers and ACDC and Boston and the Eagles. And I loved all of that stuff too. And I tried to incorporate some of that. I also loved blues. And I tried to incorporate a little bit of that in, as well into the music that I did. But the fact is, is that above and beyond everything else, it was, it was all about the song. And it was all about making a connection to people. And the greatest, the greatest compliments that I get to, still to this day is when somebody comes up to me and they say, man, that song you sang or that song you wrote, man, you, when, you, when you did that, you must have been reading my mail. Because that is exactly what I've been trying to say and just couldn't come up with the words for it. For so long. I think we're all really passionate, too. Yeah. But like I tell my kids when my kids ask me, it's because we're really cool. <laughs> <laughs> they don't believe me. Do your kids believe you? <laughs> no, not really. Not at all. <laughs> what, you know, talking about you're all you know, deeply connected to these songs, like which songs, you know, have the best stories? Um, like pick a, pick a song story. A song story? A song story. Oh, I think Heartbreak. The Loss of Love. Um, breakups. Yeah, those are my best. I don't really like the sappy songs. The label always tried to push that the stuff that they pushed on John Michael with me, and it never resonated. I, mm-hmm. I, I think I did one love song. And yeah. I just like the stuff, the, the, the heartbreak, crying in your beer, love gone wrong, always had more meat to it. I, I could sink my teeth into For it. For sure. Yeah, that was For just sure. where I was always drawn. Well, of your of your hits, what's oh? Uh, I, I mean, for me, time watches on by far probably the best best country song, best written song that I've ever done. Hank Williams sings Collider and Dear John, and time marches on. Bobby Braddock wrote it by himself. I just I was always fascinated by how much life he got in that song it, it deals with multiple generations of one family and squeezes so much visual imagery in three and a half minutes Absolutely. I was always blown away by that one well, of these days I'm going to be able to write a song <laughs> 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 I got there yet. <laughs> how about you Travis uh, it would be a toss up between uh, anymore I can't hide the way I feel about you Anymore. And here's a quarter for me. And you say you'd be happy if you could just come back home. Well, here's a quarter called someone who cares. Those are pretty different. They were. But they both dealt with that same topic of relationships and how you feel about those relationships. Once again, the acquisition of, of love or the loss of it. And to be able to state those things in, in a, a way that's just so clear and so straightforward. Um, it's just, it doesn't happen every time. Um, doesn't happen most of the time for me. Um, but when it does happen, man, it's just, it's just magic. You know? I remember when Here's a Quarter came out, 
didn't you have to like build your stage so you could stand up on a platform so people couldn't throw quarters at you? No, actually, that wasn't the case. I we we had to start making an announcement, which we still have. I got Larry the Cable Guy to record one for me about uh, two years ago that we still play before the show. But it's uh, I got hit when I first started doing Here's a Quarter. I was hanging out with uh, <clears throat> Gary Rosington from Leonard Skinner. And he started telling me stories about, he said, man, you better watch out. He said, because when we did that song, Give Me Back My Bullets, he said, people started throwing live ammunition on stage. (laughs) And he said, you better watch out. He said, that very same thing could start happening to you. Well, sure as hell, it did. And people started throwing quarters. And of course, when we first started, I was playing smaller places. Well, not all of them were smaller, but... Certainly, you know, uh, a lot of clubs, a lot of um, bigger clubs, but still, there were clubs and, uh, you know, small theaters and that's, that type of thing. So even if somebody threw one from, you know, even the balcony, it's probably not going to hurt too bad, you know, if you get hit with it. But I'll never forget, I was playing in Bristol, Tennessee, in a big civic center up there. And somebody threw one, and it hit me right above, right in the eyebrow, right above my left eye. And I, it just shocked me. I mean, I, I literally, I thought I'd been shot. And it, it knocked my head back, and you, you sit there and you think, what the hell just happened? And then I looked down and I started seeing blood gushing, you know. Anytime you get a cut in the head, man, it's going to bleed like a stuck pig. So I'm bleeding all over the place. Well, I grab a towel, <laughs> and I tried to stop it, and I couldn't stop the bleeding, so it stopped the show. Oh, my goodness. But it stopped the show. Had you figured out you weren't shot by that time? You still <laughs> yeah, I realized, I realized by that time what was going on. But it was, yeah, it was, it was a, a wake-up call for sure. And I should have known that that was going to happen eventually because people were throwing them. And I would notice, like, I was playing a solid body Gibson, uh, Chet Atkins guitar back then, acoustic, electric. And I would notice at night that there'd be little nicks or chunks or dents in my guitar from time to time. And for whatever reason, stupidity, I guess, I just never really put that. If, man, one of those things hits you in the head, it's going to do some damage. So that's that's what ended up happening. So we, I threatened, I actually threatened to stop doing the song. And my manager and I talked about it at the time. He said, man, you can't do that. He said, this song is huge. And I said, well, what can we do? He said, well, let's just make an announcement. And, and we did. And it worked out really well. I mean, people, for the most part, just kind of hated that. It's kind of, it's kind of like, we made him understand that, look, if I get hit with a quarter and I start bleeding again, the show's over. The show's <laughs> over. So you're, you're basically, you're cheating yourself out of a full performance. I'm here to perform and I want to play for you for as long as I possibly can. But can't do that if, if, uh, if you're bleeding all over the place, you know. Well, Tracy, what people throw at you? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally <laughs> underwear. 
the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> But Travis just set that up so well. <laughs> um, when you look at today's crop of country singers, what, do you see any of them who you think kind of have those '90s country sensibilities? I do. Uh, Luke Combs is a badass. He I'm is. Sorry, and I met him when he was just getting kicked off, and I've had a chance to sit next to him at some guitar rounds and stuff and the radio things. The boy's just good. He is. He's good. And uh, John Party, I did John. He's out here floating around somewhere. I mean, there's some really good talent in the music business. I don't like the more poppy things. I like guys. I'd rather hear somebody that just lays into a rock and country song or gets a little bit more on the rock and roll edge. I don't care for the bro country as much. And, and I dig, I'm happy for everybody's success. It's just not, I don't, those aren't things that I feel like I can sink my teeth into personally as an artist. I appreciate what's going on, but some of it I don't, I don't really understand completely. But there's some really, really good singers out there. And, and I've been writing with guys like Adam Sanders and some of these new guys that are just getting record deals. And they tell me that they're going in and cutting, writing and cutting 90s country records. That's what their goal is to yeah. bring the 90s sound back. So I think we're about to see the wave come again of that particular type of music that worked so well for all of us. It's coming back. And you just put, it out, put out a new album, right? I did. Made in America just a few weeks ago. I wrote eight of the 12 things on it, published three other ones with my writers and my publishing companies. I cut one outside song that uh, Chris Stapleton and Sean Camp wrote called Giving Mama Reasons to Praise and we're a proud of very traditional country. Tell me about that song. That one? Uh, you know, it's uh, it uh, it talks about leaving with your guitar on your back when you're a kid and chasing the dream and going to the bars. I mean, it's it, the reason I cut it because it sounded like something that I would have written. It, it was almost autobiographical. And uh, Mama dies in the last verse, so uh, I felt obligated to play the song for my mother before I cut it to make sure that she was cool with it. Yeah. But uh, it's it's uh, it's a great little tune. A lot of a lot of good stuff on this record. I'm proud of it. I wrote more on this record than that I've got out before. You said it was the most personal album that you've ever released. It is because I wrote to so much of it. I uh, I, I went to some publishing companies and did my normal rounds and things, and, and I got some good things. But most of it felt like. Either it had been passed over a dozen times, or I passed over it, uh, or, you know, it just doesn't feel like the a lot of songwriters were writing what I was looking for. My, my goal when I cut this record is to cut an album that is traditional country but contemporary, but I didn't want to cut any song that overlapped anything that I'd done before. And so I kind of wrote at the album as I did things in sections. I'd see what I needed, and I kind of navigated through it that way. As you listen to it from top to bottom, there won't be a time where on sticks and stones or alibis or anything like that. Everything is very traditional, but very different from anything I've done before. Kudos to you for that, man. That's right. It's to go in there, and especially these days, to go in and do a new album, and then to basically insist on doing it not only the way that you want to do it, but also doing it in a way that you can relate to. Um, and if that means writing a majority of the material on the record, which in a lot of cases it does, yep. um, to take on that, once again, that's, that's pressure to a certain extent, but to take that on and, and be willing to to just trust your instincts and go in there and do that, man, kudos to you for that. That's awesome. You know what? It feels good. 
where I'm at now, we're working secondary radio. I'm, I'm not working mainstream. It's not, it, it's almost non financially productive to try to work mainstream radio. It's too expensive as an independent artist. There's, but there are so many other ways to reach your audience. I, I really just felt like I, I needed to, to, to write for me and not try to chase what I would have years ago. I mean, there's a, you, sometimes you get caught up in writing to radio. It's like, oh, I've got to write a radio hit. I've got to write something that's commercial. I could give a crap or less about that on this record. I mean, I really I feel like this is the first time that I've honestly been able to say that I cut an album for me that I wanted to cut, things that I want to get on stage and sing every night. Because I've cut a couple albums, you know, in the last 10 years that most of it I didn't want to play. And I, and I just refuse to go down that road anymore. I'm, I'm on my own label. I'm doing my own thing. I'm, I'm happier now that I've been in a long time. Make a long time for sure. Thing. But music, the, cutting an album that doesn't overlap anything, I'm playing like six songs in my full show set now. I'm weaving all this new material into my re- in my full show because I'm not doubling up on any tempo or any groove or any subject matter or anything I've had in the past. So it, it gives me the freedom to add those things into my set. It's great. So what are you most excited to, to play every night, and, and what are you most excited for people to hear off the album? Oh, there's a bunch of them. Uh, the title track, Made in America, and, uh, uh, you know, our, when we wrote this, I wanted so much to not be political. I have very strong political views, but I don't think it's my job as an artist to express those views from the stage. I don't do it. Uh, but I wanted to write a uniting song that was kind of Americana, that, that was the America that I remember that's proud of the job that you do, that's proud of the way that you live your life, that's proud of your hometown football team, and all those things. I wanted it to be that. Made in America, it's who we are, it's what we love, it's what we do. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm proud that I'm able to put that kind of imagery on paper and be able to sing those kind of songs. There's a song called... Uh, Nothing burns that reminds me of old Hank Jr. stuff. It's just a rock and old waltz that we play every night that we added the great the guitar solo at the end. It's real cool. There's some just very unique stuff. It's really fun to play. It excites me. Well, Travis, what are you most excited about? Once again, what we talked about earlier with, with the resurgence of, of this yeah. nice country thing, I, I, it's, it's very inspiring to me. Matter of fact, I'm just in the process of putting together um, a record deal for a new album that we're going to start recording next uh, first quarter of next year, and um, it'll be my first studio album in quite quite a few years. But uh, very excited about it. Very excited about the possibilities of who I'm going to get to work with on this on this particular album. I can't really say. It. Can't really state any names. Who won't tell you? <laughs> <laughs> Once you find out, you'll, you'll understand. You'll know exactly who it is. Uh, very exciting. Uh, and just in the process right now of writing songs for that album and um, pulling together uh, material for it. So it's just, you know, I mean, just... Once again, as I've always done, just having my hands in just kind of a lot of different pies at the same time and just enjoying it. But the mo- the thing I'm most excited about is just every night going out and playing. I love the fact that I get to go out and do what I love to do for a living. And the excitement level, the crowds are getting bigger every night. The excitement level is growing every night. And 
Um, that just fires me up as an artist. It's, it's like, you know, you've, you've, you've been through a lot of ups and downs in your career over the last 30 years, but the fact is, is that it's, it's one of those levels right now where we're on a, we're on a uptick and it's, it's going up and I see it every night. I see it all the time. So it's, it's very inspiring. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Country Mile. This podcast series is produced by the USA Today Network's Erica Whitney and John Garcia. And I'm your host, Cindy Watts. Theme music from KillerTracks.com. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to rate and leave a review as well. For more in-depth coverage of country music, visit Tennessean.com backslash Country Mile.